Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rosgem, and I'll be your host. My guest today is Doug Dolan, who has been sober for over 25 years now and is a role model for how to go through anything that life has to throw at us and still stay sober through it all. He's had a lot of losses in his life, but he's also had a lot of achievements that we're going to hear about today. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Maureen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'm grateful that you're here. We met on LinkedIn when you were celebrating your 25 years. I was delighted to see that. And I know that you're you're in the field of recovery. But before we get to talking about that, why don't you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what your life likes now, like where do you live? You know, who's in your family? Do you have a rescue dog? <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that. And then we'll sure. get into your story. Okay, sure. Yeah. So um, I live in Prescott, Arizona. So we're about an hour and a half north of Phoenix. We're mm -hmm. up in the mountains. So we're nice. at about 5,200 feet plus. Uh, married. My wife, Donna, is a registered nurse. We've been married for 22 years. We have three children. Uh, Bailey is 22, Isabel is 21, and Colin is 19. Nice. And uh, actually, our oldest is the one that who's been in the family for the shortest period of time because we adopted Bailey when she was 14. Wow. So she kind of came to us, you know, later in life. But uh, very blessed. And as far as rescue dogs, yes, I have three. We also have a turtle. <laughs> that was and, a total uh, guess, right? <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's true. We do, you know, we do have them. And and uh, just very blessed to have the family that I have and live where I live. Yeah, I, I Arizona certainly is a beautiful area of the country. So I know that um, a lot of people retire out there and, and more, uh, you know, Besides Florida and North Carolina, <laughs> many actually, Prescott, our town, is often rated uh, in the top five to top ten of, re of uh, retirement destinations in oh, the nation. Oh wow! Yeah, because yeah, the weather's so nice. At least ten out of the twelve months, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we're fortunate because at elevation, we don't get as hot down as they do down in Phoenix. We stay cooler, and we do get snow during uh, the winter time. Oh yeah. Like, is it, so is it in between uh, Flagstaff and, and we're about 90 Phoenix? miles from both Phoenix and Flagstaff. Right in so the middle. Phoenix yeah. is about 90 miles to the South Flagstaff's about 90 miles to the Northeast of us. I've been there many times. Yep. All right. So let's dive into your story a little bit. Um, you know, I know from your little uh, bio that you sent me that you've had so many losses. And I th I'll think a lot of that was in recovery, but let's go back a little further. You've also mm -hmm. traveled extensively being from a military family. Tell us, how was your um, world growing up and how did you get into uh, drinking or, or drugging, whatever it was that you did? And, and how did you figure out you were an alcoholic? Yeah. So I was born in Japan. Uh, my dad was uh, serving in the Navy, doing his tours down in Vietnam. 
Uh, he got out of the military shortly after I was born and then went to work for Xerox. He worked in the finance department and Xerox bounced us all over the United States. So we had lived the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, Central Illinois, Northern Indiana. Then we lived outside of Chicago, uh, Northern California, upstate New York, a couple of different places in Southern California before I moved my family out to Arizona. Okay. Uh, I come from a rigorously devout Catholic family, went to Catholic schools my whole life, went to a Jesuit all boys college prep high school in Rochester, New York, had to wear a sports coat and tie and dress shirt and dress pants every day to high school. Uh, I was an altar boy and how I started drinking, I had little sips of altar wine along the way as an altar boy and as mm -hmm. part of the Catholic mass. But I really didn't drink until I was a freshman in high school. And so I went to a high school party with my two older brothers. I'm third of seven kids. So come from a big family. Oh, well. I'm three of six myself. Are you? Yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. So we're, and like, we're like practically related. No, that's just... right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of similarities, right? And so I went to a high school party with my two older brothers and I figured, well, if I was the only freshman there, I have to show that I can keep up with the juniors and seniors. And so I remember a six pack of beer. I remember six or eight shots of Jack Daniels. I oh blacked my. out from there. Don't remember the rest of the evening other than for me, it was like a jolt of electricity. Like I suddenly felt alive and I was absolutely in love with it from the very first time. I was thinking, why don't people do this all the time? But growing up in the family that I did, my parents, I've seen them drink once or twice in their whole lifetime. Oh, jeez. Yeah, my parents didn't have alcohol in the household. They never did a drug. And so uh -oh. it, you were going to hell. And you, oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But I did absolutely love it. And so with the military background and also with the Catholic background, I just I think I learned a lot of skills on how to cover it up and how to start to live this double life where I knew how to show up out in public, but I started developing this hidden life in private. And so I usually didn't drink during the week, but come the weekend, I would drink myself into absolute blackouts. And I've estimated I've probably blacked out somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to 500 times. Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, during my drinking times. And so it just progressed from there. And at first I thought it was just fun and what high school kids did. And I just happened to be more intense at it or better at it than other individuals. But I didn't realize how much I was just really drinking myself into slavery. So yeah. that's how it kind of all got started. So you, but you became addicted, it sounds like, very quickly, like probably before you were even out of high school. Absolutely. And so I started, I was a blackout drinker from the get-go as a freshman. I started smoking uh, marijuana my sophomore year. My junior year, I started doing quite a bit of nitrous oxide. Uh, but drinking was always my love. And so I quit the other things. I dabbled in cocaine a little bit, but really... I identified as a drinker. I loved alcohol. I loved everything about it until I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I actually, same thing for me. I started drinking and, and drug. I was popping whatever pill anybody gave me by the time I was like 
14, really 15. Okay. I was full blown off and running just like you. And in, yeah. in my, when I was 16 in my junior year of high school, I actually spent the whole first week in detentions, making up for all the detentions I missed mm. in the previous mm. year. I skipped something like 82 days of the, of the calendar year. And there's only like 160. Uh, well, yeah. Right. I'm just grateful. We didn't have cell phones back then. They could attract me. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Or people but, taking videos of some of the things that. Right. We used to do, right? Oh yeah. That yeah. would not have been good. There's a few, uh, I still have a few pictures of, you know, sure, the morning after right. and all yeah. that stuff, but, but yeah. uh, you know, there was some good times. Okay. So now you graduate high school and what happened next? Did you go on to college? So what the Dolan plan was, is I was supposed to get an ROTC scholarship, Okay, yeah. go to college, do my time in the military, and then get a corporate job. That's oh, what, okay. you know, my yeah. two older brothers did. That's what my dad did. Uh, his father was military. My mom's father was military. I had a scholarship opportunity from the Marine Corps, and I told my parents I want to go become an actor. And like, <laughs> that does not compute. Does, yeah, it does not <laughs> compute. So two days after I graduate high school in upstate New York, I flew out to Southern California and started working a variety of odd jobs from warehouse work to bartending and things of that nature while I was doing plays, mystery dinner theaters, car commercials, those sorts of things. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. so your personality is is probably very similar to mine. I was into acting in high school too. I did a lot of that. And yeah. I was a, I was a singer too and then I totally ruined my voice with smoking. It was not good. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so you go out to the party town and you're trying to make it in the in that world. Um yeah. So and what so, happened? Yeah, I, I want to hear yeah. about this part where you figured out that you really had a problem, like, and got sure. into recovery. How old were you when you got sober? 26. Okay. I was 24. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Very similar. So what ended up happening is, so I was kind of doing the starving, starving artist routine and I figured, Hey, drinking's going to fit well into that world. So that's going to be a useful skill for me to have. And I was going to Hollywood parties. I was going to underground clubs up in LA and in Hollywood and spent a lot of time up there. And then I started to realize this is not where I want to end up spending my life. Like I love the art of film. I love the art of acting, but the people that I was hanging out with and what I saw is just kind of a fakeness yeah. of, a lot of that environment is not how I wanted to end up. And I was getting kind of tired of the starving artist routine. And so actually I went to work in the computer memory industry and I went to work for a company. It was called Southland Microsystems in Irvine. And this was a company at its peak was about 250 employees doing 300 million in sales. So decent sized organization. I started as a box boy in the warehouse. And within five years, I was a VP reporting directly to the owner. Oh, wow. So you so moved up very quickly. I went at it aggressively. Now, halfway through that trajectory, I was still a blackout binge drinker. Oh, they my. just didn't know it because I was really good at hiding it. So during the week, I'd work 15, 16 hours a day. And I would do any job that the company's had that was a job that nobody else wanted to do, I'd raise my hand and take it on, like, give it to me, I'll go do it. And so in my first two and a half years, while I was still a blackout binge drinker, I probably had six or seven different promotions during that time. 
And so what would happen is during the week, I was very responsible, but on the weekend, I would drink myself into a blackout. I would have times where I'd wake up in jail, having no idea why oh, I was there. Boy. I would get arrested for drunk in public. So I got caught on top of a bank and was surrounded by squad cars and police helicopters on me <gasps> with no ill intent. I was just drunk, thought it was a good idea at the time. They thought I was robbing the bank. Uh, I've been thrown in padded cells. And then it got to where I, for about the last year and a half of my drinking, I now lived in North Laguna. North Laguna is a beautiful place. I had a beautiful ocean view. And yet I was miserable. I'm getting promotions at work. Everything should be great. I have so you this have money. Yep. You got a nice place. You got all the trappings, but you are not happy. You have no really idea who you are at this point. I didn't. I didn't know myself anymore. And I was, I would ball like a baby in my mm. place, just begging God, please take this away from me. Have this stop. I can't take this anymore. I'd pour alcohol down the drain, just absolutely hating it with a voice in my head, just saying, what are you doing? We're just going to go get another bottle. And sure enough, you know, within an hour, I know I'm going to hate myself, but there I am drinking. And so I had this double life. So what ended up, how I ended up outing me in essence is I was on a business trip up in Northern California and I had way too much bourbon in me. And I convinced a couple of other employees to get in the car and give me the keys to the rental car. And I was going to go find us a bar where we could drink at 1.50 a.m., even though the oh, bar is closed at 2 a.m. Right. And I ended up totaling the car into a street pole at a high rate of speed, took out the street pole, totaled the car, and I'm lucky I didn't kill anybody. And so, but I was so good at hiding it. At that time, I was a mid-level marketing manager. They called my VP to tell him what had happened. My VP started arguing with the police saying, you've got the wrong guy. Cannot possibly be oh, done. Oh, wow. You were and a good actor. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And I even told him, Steve, it's me. And he said, I still don't believe that. I think you're trying to be ultra responsible and take the heat for somebody else in the vehicle. But he just didn't know because I had been covering it up. Yep. And so I when I when the police arrived, I fully confessed everything. And my attorney said, I can't help you with this. Like you've given him an airtight case. Why did you do that? I could he was saying he could have gotten me maybe reckless driving or something of that nature. And I said, because I needed to stop me. Yeah, because you so were ready to take responsibility and start being responsible for your actions. So good for you. Something yeah. inside you spoke up your higher self, right? Yeah, thank God. Yeah. And so did, did you start in sobriety from there? Did you find out about AA? What happened? Yeah. So what ended up happening originally, so I lost my license for a year because of the DUI. I called my parents asking for some financial help. They said no, because they said, we don't want to enable you and take away some of your consequences and then feel like you might not get well. Wow. That's uh, my, very mature of them, actually. Too many was, parents rescue, right? <laughs> no kidding. And my, and my, parent, my mom cried over it. She thought I was never going to talk <sighs> to her again. Which initially I thought I was never going to. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I made, you know what? And so that was immensely helpful. And originally my company was going to fire me, but one of the owners was also in recovery. And he said, oh, listen, let me give you good. a one shot. Yeah. And I, I got lucky to end up where I ended up. And they said, you've done a lot of great things so far. We'll give you one chance go to, and I went to a program in Newport beach. They said, stay there as long as it takes go to AA, 
get a sponsor, work the steps, get well, and you can continue on with your career here or just tell us that, you know what, you want to continue to drink and we'll just part ways now and clean up the mess behind you, but you got to move on. And so I just grabbed a hold of it where it talks about in our 12 step literature of having that desperation of drowning men. Yeah. I was already at that point and I'm grateful that nobody had to convince me no. to, you know, be there. I so wanted it. And so I actually ended up doing a 90 day outpatient program, uh, at Hoke hospital in Newport beach. And, uh, I had lost my license. So I did, I would go there Monday, Wednesday, Friday evening for three hours in the evening. I'd walk to four a meetings at the Canyon club in Laguna beach. And I would work 90 to hundred hours a week. Oh boy. Nothing else. Turned into a workaholic with yeah. programaholic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's okay. Full immersion sometimes is, you know, the best to get past all the cravings and all that, right. all the rest of it. Wow, Doug, you really, so you just dived in, but you stayed at that same company. Um, I did. So, well, so I now this, wait, I have to interrupt because yes. when did you meet your wife? So I met my wife two years and one month into my sobriety. Perfect. So is she they, in recovery? She is not. She's okay. a registered nurse and she, she doesn't drink that often, which is, you know, it wasn't that big that's of a change. Great. For her. Yep. That's yeah, fine. No, I'm just curious. I was like, cause yeah. I met my husband on AA campus. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I just yeah. like to know. Okay, so keep going. So, you, so now we're going to dive into talking more about your career and what are some of the things that what are some of the changes you experienced in, you know, working on yourself and how did that boost your your uh your professional life? Sure. You know, one was that I didn't carry the weight of things or continue to create the consequences that I did while I was still drinking. So it's like this weight had come off me and I had all this other free energy and free attention that I could apply to something else. Now, what I will also say is how I went at my recovery, I wouldn't recommend for most people. It worked for me, but the amount of time and energy that it was putting into work while balancing out those other things, I I wouldn't recommend it for most people. It's just how I'm wired to go. So I went, so. You know what we call that? What's that? Overachievement. Oh yeah. A lot of us are overachievers. So I, you know, I'm, I, I totally get that. I'm with you. But it's instead of like going out and having fun, overachieving, <laughs> yeah, you're going to yeah, pour yeah. it into something positive instead. Okay, so keep going. So I, I poured it into my own personal development, and I'm I'm grateful Perfect. I gave myself that two years. My program originally told me, well, if you're not in a relationship, don't get into a relationship for one year. I said, I'll make it two years. <laughs> I can't trust me, and I got I I had I have a bad picker and. I need that, this that's what I, to, yeah, me too. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, same thing. Well, uh, that's what my sponsor told me. Maureen, yeah. you have a bad picker. Just yeah. wait, wait a little that's while. Right. But yeah. yeah, now I've been married for 34 years. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I learned is what's very important, whether in leadership or us just leading ourselves and disciplining ourselves, is how important it is to pour into yourself. What's the work that you do with yourself and for yourself on a daily basis that will strengthen you as a leader? 
because one, it's going to make you clearer. It's going to make you more educated, make you more empathetic, make you more passionate, and you have better skills for connecting with others. Plus, they are also hopefully going to see that you live it out by example. Out loud. Because if if you're not working on you, the resentments, the anger, the fear, the frustrations, how does that bubble out of you? that makes you more of a boss than it does of being a leader. Exactly. I often train leaders now and, and they're man, a lot of times they're managers. And I say, we've got to, the first thing that they put on the list for what kind of um, is the worst, what is the characteristics of the worst boss you ever had? And they always put, what do you, what would you first thing you would say? Uh, The worst quality of a boss is is bosses typically are are more of just slave drivers. Yeah, they're and it's all or about micromanagers. What's the boss, right, micromanagers, micromanagers. And, and what yeah. does the boss want or need? So versus how that. do you inspire bringing the qualities of the best versions of the people on your team out of them and that they want to give that back to the organization. Right. So they're busy a lot of times getting tasks done, but they don't realize that they're dealing with people who also have issues every day and they bring their emotions to work because we're human. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And that's the beauty of AA, by the way, is you know, I was fortunate uh, getting started at the Canyon Club in Laguna. It's a great place. But as I've moved around and as I've also traveled around a lot, I've gone to a meetings across the United States. But it's you have this mixture of people who are coming from all these different backgrounds and yet has some similarities and have a singular purpose. And so when working in an organization, it's realizing like, okay, you also have this mixture of people who are coming in with all kinds of things, right? Yeah, all kinds of backgrounds. Without a doubt. I think the people in um, that get to go to that get, get started in AA and get to go to meeting after meeting after meeting and hear all these different points of view and opinions. And you're just you know, you're quiet for 55 of those minutes. If you speak for a couple of minutes, you know, right. And hearing those different perspectives, you get such a, you get such a better idea of the value of diversity and hearing all those different perspectives helps you to grow and expand out of your comfort zone without doing anything, just listening. It's so amazing. Not to mention empathy, learning to listen, Right. Learning to really understand before you have an opinion about it and and, you know, just understanding and and seeing how people feel and talking about their feelings, even though at work, we're not talking about our feelings unless you work in recovery and what you are. But but you know, that doesn't mean that they don't have it. They're all there. It's all there. Yeah. Well, even when I was in the computer memory industry, which is a very different uh, industry than what I'm in today, you know, understanding where people come from, you are going to be a more effective leader because one of the things is you're going to have a better understanding of what their filtration mechanism is like. And how do I communicate with that individual to have them understand and inspire them towards the mission of what we're trying to accomplish? If I'm just lazy and it's just I throw information out there and I hope they connect the dots and relate to it and they get on board with it, that's that's such a lazy way about going about leading people. And so there's there's just a lot of great examples in recovery. And there's something else that you said earlier, and it's 
it's this, when you take care of yourself and you have your own routine in the morning of self-care, whether it's, you know, meditation and exercise or journaling or reading, whatever it is, and that you take care of yourself besides just showering, shaving and eating. Then, then even though you walk around in other people's crap all day, so to speak, you know, you're bound to get some on you, but you can That's shake right. that off easy and easily enough that, uh, and, and give it to give that affirmation to yourself, give yourself the self-talk because we have all these tools that a yes. lot of people don't have. Unfortunately, there's a lot of managers out there who just think like, nobody thanks me for anything, or I'm not appreciated. And, you know, and they don't know how to give it to themselves. So that was one of the big things that I learned too, in recovery that I think has I been really absolutely helpful. agree. And that's where I work today with people on helping them define a definition of the best version of me. Yeah, and it's something that's hundred percent inside their control. And how do we, what are the whys of why they want to become that individual? And then what are the daily steps of things to work on? So even if the day goes haywire, I still have the victory and I worked on continuing to grow and evolve me. And so it's just a very healthy standpoint to come from. Yeah. I, I say, you know, develop you and then you develop That's, others. You can't just right. develop others. You have to know yourself first. Um, and so I would like to know what is it that you're doing today? Uh, recovery in the pines. Yes. And, and what is your role there and how are you, how are you helping people? So Recovering the Pines, we are a 12-step based Christian program that works both in recovery, people with substance use disorders, and also other mental health issues. So not everybody who comes to us necessarily has a substance abuse issue. Uh, they may just be pure mental health working on other things. So we work in both capacities, and normally those things go go together anyways. Yeah, right? they do. Yeah. I was just gonna, you know, we, we self-medicate, you have to self-medicate yeah, because absolutely. you can't stand what's going on in your head. Right. Right. Or in so, your mood. Yeah. Well, in, in my case, I, I, I was blessed with the upbringing that I had. I didn't have mental health issues growing up, but the more I drank, I developed mental health issues. Right. So some it's a, it's a something that they have earlier on, whether it's trauma from childhood or other events or other organic mental health issues that they then self-medicate and those mental health issues get worse. Or like me, those mental health issues develop because I was tearing down my life, guzzling a depressant and, you know, things just went haywire. So we work on uh, different key areas from our faith to recovery, to health and wellness, and also life skills. And life skills is a big portion too, because yeah. this isn't just about getting people to stop. And I talk in terms of numbing agents, where I see people in locked in a compulsive pattern of when they have a trigger or a pain that we go to a numbing agent. And numbing agents can be drugs, can be alcohol, but we can use sex, we can use food, we can use money, we can use work, we can use anger, we can use self-pity. There's a variety of things that we can use as a numbing agent as a way to distract ourselves. You forgot shopping and gaming. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, <laughs> without a doubt. But the problem is, is all we've done is distract ourselves from it. And we've stacked up additional consequences for yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And we've stayed stagnant in our own personal development. Yep. And then now we've got greater pain, greater shame, greater guilt, 
more consequences, greater pain, and we just start the cycle all over again until we work on breaking those cycles. The cycle of destruction. So what's a typical uh, length of time that somebody stays in your facility? Average length is one year. Oh, wow. Okay. Some of that may be all of it while they're here. Some of it may be they do some here and then we do remote work, whether we do it via Zoom, via the phone, or we even travel to their home environments for certain individuals and work with them regularly back in their own environments. But average time of engagement is one year. And we have other individuals that we actually work with for multiple years. And what is your role there? So I'm the COO, so I have certain back-end responsibilities, but I also go out and um, both my partner and I do interventions. We started the program back in 2012. I estimate I've probably done somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 600 interventions. Wow. I also do group sessions and I do individual sessions. The groups I focus on, the one we're in today is on acceptance, Because if somebody doesn't have a healthy understanding and use of acceptance, we usually get into the shoulds or the expectations or the shouldn'ts, and we're not dealing with life as it is. And acceptance also doesn't say, I have to like it, or I have to agree with it, or I have to be resigned to it, but I have to be able to name something what it is so I can apply the healthiest right action to it. And so with these classes, I weave in things of, 12-step aspects. I also weave in things of the Bible because we are a Christian program, but it's also then we get into self-assessment scales. So it personalizes that aspect, whatever that class is to the individual, because if it's not personalized to them, they're not going to listen to it. It's going to pass right by them. And then get into what are some of the consequences if we don't do it, or what are some of the things that interrupt it, and then give them practical steps that they can quickly put into action. So hopefully the lessons will stick. So that's a lot of the work that I currently do. Wow. And so um, we got a a couple more minutes um, and we're going to wrap up, but I want to ask you this. I had said in my, in my opening here that you had gone through a lot of Uh, very difficult things in your life, and you listed them off to me, if you would share a little bit about what can you go through when you're sober? And what is the biggest tool for getting through your grief? Yeah. So what ended up happening when we moved uh, to Prescott in 2005, I bought a fine dining restaurant and our children were two and four at the time. In the first year, my wife gets progressively ill. She goes back to Southern California where she knew the medical community. She ended up going through multiple brain surgeries. So I have my wife 400 miles away. It's not going well. We're not sure if she's going to live or die, trying to run a restaurant, trying to manage our children at a very young age. At the same time, Her father was diagnosed with cancer. He passed away shortly thereafter. A friend of ours OD'd and died. My younger brother OD'd and died. Uh. And we had the worst market crash in 80 years. My business is wiped out. I have to sell it at a loss. We're financially wiped out. I had to go through back surgery because of two blown out herniated discs that had been immensely aggravating for about a year and a half. And then my wife and I split apart. And so we had all these different major life events happening all at the same time. And yet I stayed sober through it all. And my wife and I reconciled. And as I mentioned, we even adopted a child since then. 
And so some of the major gifts, one is actually I had one of the one of our regulars at the restaurant. I think this is this kind of sums it all up, who knew what was going on with us before I lost the restaurant. He asked me, are you are you drinking again? And I said, why? And he said, because if I didn't know what was going on with you, I see how you're greeting guests and taking care of everybody. I would think you didn't have a care in the world. And yet I know your whole world is unraveling. Yeah. And he said, so are you drinking? And I said, no, I'm not drinking. How are you coping? <laughs> how are you coping? And I said, it's a couple of things. First off, number one, thank God I'm going through this sober. Because if I wasn't sober, I could turn this tragedy of a situation into absolute hell. And so one is I have my sobriety. Two is thank God I have a relationship with God. God. Because this is more than I can handle, but I have him to go to. That to turn is it over. Without to continue to surrender. Okay. Absolutely. And three, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have great people who are there to support me that I know I can call on. And those healthy connections are immensely healing and important for us, for our mental health and getting us through these tough times. And I said, number four, there's seven and a half billion people on this planet. I can guarantee you, even with everything I'm going through right now, I could find 6 billion people who would trade spots with me right now and say, I'll take your problems, Doug, as compared to what I'm going through. So it's not to say my issues weren't significant and that they weren't important, but I know other human beings have struggled through significantly more mm -hmm. and that it's possible for humans to survive this. And I didn't want to just be ordinary or just be a statistic of somebody who had just relapsed through this. It's like, okay, I'm going to find a way. And so it's leaning into God, leaning into my program, leaning into my relationships with other people. You had a good support system. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it's a blessing. No kidding. Oh my gosh. And then we do know too, when we go through all that adversity, I've had a couple of, of times like that in my sobriety where, you know, everything changed. We changed our house. I had a medical issue. My father died, you know, our finances yeah. blew up. I took my daughter out of school. I had, you know, almost every area of my life uh, changed. But, and I was about 15 years sober at the time, but I did it because, uh, I mean, I was able to really go through it almost thriving, not just yeah. surviving because right. of my people. I yeah. had my people, I had my God, my faith. I had, yeah. I, I also felt, I felt my uh, feelings. I allowed myself to yes. really grieve and not stuff any of that stuff in. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes I felt like, yeah, oh, I'm complaining again today, but it, these were moments, they weren't just the whole day, you know, sometimes right. you have a bad day, but anyways, so uh, thank you so much. That's so very, very inspiring, Doug. I really appreciated your message today. So um, is there anything else you want to tell people before we wrap up and then also share with us where they can reach you if they want to reach out? Sure. I think the main point is, is to realize if you're struggling with something, whether it's an issue of substance abuse or mental health, please reach out and get help. Mm -hmm. Because the longer that you take, you're still feeding either that addiction or, you know, you're usually are getting, uh, you're getting worse mental health wise. So there's no guilt or shame in it. Everybody struggles with something. So please reach out and get help. And as far as us here at Recovering the Pines, our website is at www.recoveryinthepines.com. I'll even give out my personal cell, which is 
910-9608. And my email is Doug Dolan at recoveryinthepines.com. And uh, I welcome the opportunity to, uh, to, you know, help in any way that I can. So in addition to this, by the way, I sit on a number of different committees too. I sit on a committee to review all the overdose fatalities for our county. I also sit on a pharmacy committee. So we're reviewing potential pharmacy abuses and education to pharmacies. I go out and do speaking engagements on issues of substance abuse and mental health. And back in October, I was selected to do some training with the DEA. Oh, and wow, that's and so some, cool. Yeah, some events with the DEA. So just very blessed in that way. Yeah, because clearly with all of that, there's no way you're going to be using again. <laughs> <laughs> when you see those kind of statistics, right? When you see sure. how people are really suffering out there, it's such a, um, a reminder. So staying involved, so important. Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, Thank you, Maureen, for giving me the opportunity. It's been great. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters.